Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, everybody. When you throw out a word like creativity, many people immediately assume that they're left out of the conversation. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not an artist. Uh, What does creativity have to do with me? But today we're going to talk about creativity in a much broader sense of the word. If you're moving through the world and making choices about career stuff, parenting, how you treat strangers, whatever, that's all creativity at least according to my guest, the legendary record producer, Rick Rubin. I've been a fan of this dude since I don't know when. Just check out this partial list of artists he has worked with. This is amazing. The Beastie Boys, Johnny Cash, Run DMC, Slayer, Weezer, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Shakira, Neil Diamond, Tom Petty, Metallica, Adele, The Strokes, and Jay-Z. And like I said, that's just a partial list. The amazing part is that Rick Rubin doesn't even play music himself. He's just got incredibly good taste and a kind of mystical approach to creativity that draws many of the planet's most popular artists. Rick Rubin has just put out a book called The Creative Act, and it's about much more than creativity narrowly defined. It's actually about how to be alive. In this conversation, we talked about Rick's meditation practice, which he's been doing for a long, long time, the connection between meditation and creativity, why creativity is a birthright for every single one of us, how good habits can facilitate the making of good art, the benefits of accepting the magical and mysterious aspects of creativity, his analogy of the vessel and the filter, the difference between authenticity and sincerity, the role of doubt when creating, the role of intuition, what to do when you're feeling stuck in a creative endeavor, his approach to work-life balance, which was unusual, his take on drugs and their effect on the creative process, and his thoughts on the creative capacity of AI. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I gotta tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. 
Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it. But already, I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free. For 30 days, visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Rick Rubin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, sir. Very excited to have you. I thought we'd start, if you're cool with it, with meditation, we talk a lot about meditation on this show, and I've heard that you started meditating when you were 14. That is true. How and why? Uh, my neck hurt when I was in school, and my parents brought me to the pediatrician who delivered me, who happened to be hip. This was in the mid-70s, maybe late 70s. And he said my neck problems were stress, and he recommended I learn to meditate. And I learned TM at that point in time. And um, I would say it probably had more impact on my life than maybe anything else I've done. Hmm. Transcendental Meditation is an organization and a practice that originates from... Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, yes. Yes, yes. And basically, with respect to him, it really did kind of, and this is a little cute, TM trademark an ancient technique of mantra-based meditation. So he was drawing on ancient traditions. And there's been plenty of research to suggest that TM is really good for you. But on an of one level, like what did it do for you that made it the most meaningful thing? Um, I didn't know it was as meaningful as it was until I stopped doing it and then started doing it again. So I started when I was 14. I stopped when I was in college. A year after college, I moved to California. And I decided I was going to start meditating again. And I remember I didn't just start. I remember it was a big decision to start meditating again. It wasn't, I didn't take it trivially. And it took me a couple of months from the time that I decided I want to until I actually re-engaged. And from the first time that I sat this second period of meditation after doing it for the years I did it before, from the very first time, I recognized, first of all, how familiar it felt right away. Like, this is a part of my life that I'm reconnecting with. I understood it, having been away from it and coming back to it, as this is a big part of my life, and this is a big part of why I am the way I am, whatever that is. This is a piece of it. And I think I've always been able to see past what's the surface of what's going on and tune in more to the deeper meaning or what's really going on. You know, not maybe not so much what people are saying, but what's beneath what they're saying or the energy in the music and what emotion is rooted in it 
or um, when people tell stories that the stories are often as much about themselves as they are about what they're talking about. I just sought all of these levels that I did not see before learning to meditate. What was it about the practice, the nuts and bolts of the practice that enabled that deeper way of seeing? I can't tell you I know how it works. I would say that it's a silent mantra practice. There are meditation practices that are more awareness-based where you take in everything that's around you. You're aware of everything going on. And then there are meditation practices that are rooted in concentration. And TM is a concentration-based practice. So you focus all of your attention on the practice. And if any thoughts come up during the practice, you don't push them down, but you don't engage in them. You let them pass and you come back. Every time you realize you're not engaging in the meditation practice, as soon as you realize you're not doing it, you just go back to doing it. That's all. Very simple practice. And I suppose so much of the internal chatter, self-chatter that goes on, we're not aware that it's happening when it's happening. We all have it. It goes on all the time. And through the meditation practice, we come into contact and we get to see this thing, this ongoing argument with ourselves <laughs> and get to step aside from it and just be in the moment, just be here now with whatever the object of our focus is. So just to state that back to you, as the volume of the internal chatter went down for you as a result of doing this concentration practice, then as you moved through the world, the yammering voices had less salience, less purchase within your mind, and that allowed you to see things that were heretofore missed. Yes, and I could see those chattering voices in other people. Mm. I was aware that when people were saying things, it was rarely what was going on with them. It was a surface reaction to a situation based on a past experience, and it was just this momentary thing. And um, I can give you a specific example. In my family, my closest relative other than my parents was a cousin who was the son of my father's brother. And he was my favorite cousin growing up because he was probably about five years older than me. And he was a cool kid and he was more of a, an adult and, you know, he could drive before I could drive and he listened to cool music before I listened to cool music. So he was someone that I looked up to and he was very close to his dad, my father's brother. And then my father's brother passed away. And at the funeral, my cousin lashed out at my father and said some very mean things to him. And my father never really forgave the cousin for doing this. And I tried explaining to my father, because they were very close as well. My, my favorite cousin and my father were very close, always very close. And I explained, my cousin is going through a terrible pain. He lost his dad. This is as bad of a, of a moment as he has. He's lashing out in the world. He's angry. And he's close enough to you to be able to show his true pain to you, it has nothing to do with you. His dad just died. He's burying his dad. That's what this is about. This isn't about you. That's an example of, I don't know if I would have been aware of that 
had I not been a meditator. Yeah, that really tracks with my experience that the more you get comfortable with, familiar with your own inner chaos and cacophony, the more you recognize that that's going on for everybody. And that inexorably, I believe, leads to a kind of empathy. Absolutely. And it's harder to um, hold a grudge for someone who's acting out their pain, even if you happen to be in the way. When you see that, this is not about you. You're a stand-in for what's going on. And yet I remain pretty skilled at holding those grudges. <laughs> so TM was really the entree for you. And then, as I understand it, you moved on to other forms of meditation. Yes, I've tried Vipassana. I've done breathing meditations. I've done all types of meditations, focusing on a candle, chanting. I've done many types. And I found great things in all of them. I tend to keep coming back to TM for some reason, and I don't know if that's just because it was the first one that I learned, so it has its deepest roots in me, but it's one of the defaults that I go to. Although these days when I sit down, I might sit down to do TM and it ends up becoming something different, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, so often in my experience, you know, and I'm, I'm a piker compared to you when it comes to meditation in that I've only been doing it for, I don't know, 13, 14 years, but Often I'll sit and do a concentration practice, and once the mind is settled, I'll open up and do something a little bit less structured. Mm -hmm. Or I'll do something, a different structured, like sometimes I'll go into um, metta, which is the four phrases of loving kindness that might come up, or it might turn into prayer or uh, gratitude. And when those come, I allow those to come. So you've got this amazing new book about creativity. What connection in your mind is there between meditation and similar practices, and creativity. In the same way that we just discussed the benefits of meditation in getting closer to what's really happening around us, the same is true with the things that we're making. So we can be more in tune, more in tune with ourselves, more in tune with our inspiration, and those aspects that, um, how can I explain it? There's a depth that we're able to tap into that works its way into our creations. So waking up and being more aware of the inner and outer environments can be the source of inspiration. Absolutely, because we're refining our senses through meditation. And through that refinement, we're better able to deal with any type of detail or just see possibilities harder to see otherwise. Just as a foundational question here, and I'll probably have said this in the introduction, but I want to let you say it too, and you really go out of your way to make this point in the book, you're not thinking of creativity as something that's restricted to that thin band of society that would call itself artists. Your argument is that everybody is a creator. How so? We're all faced with choices daily. And if we're making considered choices... That's the work of an artist. If you're not just checking off things from a list, but if you're deciding, hmm, what's the best way to handle this? What's the most interesting way? What's the best uh, seasoning I could add to this dish that I'm preparing? What would it be like at this time of day to take the scenic route home instead of the direct route? Every choice we make or starting a business is a completely creative act. Also, in whatever job you do, chances are you're there to make decisions that involve making creative choices. 
We do them all the time. It's funny when I hear someone say, you know, I'm not creative. It's like, you're not a human being if you're not creative. It's, it's truly our birthright. There's this cliche about life as a work of art, but cliches become cliches because they're true. And so <laughs> through your choices, you are creating your life. Yes. I thought of another thing related to the earlier thing we were talking about, about why meditation impacts our artwork is if you're doing a practice that involves persistence and discipline, which meditation does, you bring those skills with you into your artistic practice, in your choices. You may do an extra pass of the edit before you turn it in. You may be willing to go the extra distance for it to be all that it could be because you're in the habit of forcing yourself to do something that maybe isn't fun at all times. There's a discipline involved. You get something great for it, but there is this trade-off of, I'm going to work through the difficult times doing this, and I'm not going to stop. That strikes me as potentially applicable or a decent description of the benefits from many kinds of practice. Yes, meditation really wakes you up and allows you to take in the world in a way that allows you to get inspiration. But the daily grind of doing the thing can give you the tenacity and grit and perseverance to create in the world, which is very hard if you want to do it well. But I would imagine that a, an exercise practice could have the same benefit because that too sucks. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that is for your benefit, that it takes some energy to, to get to do it. A great example is going into ice tubs. If you've ever done any getting in an ice tub, you never feel like, oh, yeah, let's jump in the ice tub. This is going to be great. It's never that. <laughs> it's always a battle of will. Every single time. I've been doing it for 10 years. Every time I stand at the tub, there's a battle of will that goes on where I, I'm doing it now. I'm getting in. I'm doing it. And I do it. Again, it's a commitment and that commitment for a greater good works its way into the craft as well. In the book, you say good habits create good art. Good habits allow art to continue to be made. In other words, if you make things using a shortcut method, let's say you get really high <laughs> to have an experience <laughs> that's uh, otherworldly. And you can write a great song that way. I think eventually, and if we look historically, usually the odds catch up and it doesn't work to be a sustainable solution. Hmm. So the beauty of this is that we're talking about sustainable solutions, healthy habits that allow you to do good work for a long period of time. So what are the other healthy habits that would fit into that category? An interesting one, I didn't, I didn't know this one early on because I was always a night owl and so many musicians I know are night owls and we would work all night and I would work all night and sleep all day. Something changed when I changed to be in tune with the planet and waking up with the sun and going to sleep not long after it got dark, where you're engaged in the rhythms of the planet in a different way and somehow, again, I can't explain it, but I feel as I'm working, the energy of the sun is working its way into the work. And it's a good, it's a good thing. <laughs> I don't know if I'm explaining it well. It's a little, um, it's a little metaphysical. 
Well, you are explaining it as well as I think is humanly possible, but you're getting at one of the, at least to me, fascinating aspects of creativity, which is that there are lots of very practical and easily understood things one can do to support creativity. But at the end of the day, it's a fucking mystery. Absolutely. No, and I think accepting the magic aspects of it also is helpful, knowing it's not us. Knowing, you know, there's no ego involved. If I'm working on something and it turns out great, that's not because I'm great. That's not how it works. I may be persistent and I may be willing to go as far as it takes for it to be as good as it can get, but that's still not about me. It's about the forces beyond our control coming together that allow this thing to happen. We just happen to be there when it happens because often we're there when it doesn't happen, you know, and it's not different. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like you can, we can go to the studio every day for a month and maybe three days are incredible and 27 are not as good. We have no control of that. And we don't know the difference. We don't know why. We'll see it happen day to day where an artist will be playing a song and it sounds okay, pretty good, good, pretty good, okay. And then maybe it sounds unbelievable, but you don't know what's different when it's unbelievable than five minutes earlier when it was okay. Everything's the same. But for some reason, everybody in the room looks at each other like, what's going on? <laughs> because we don't know what's happening. It's We're just uh, witnessing it. When we witness it, we can say, oh, there it is. And then it's scary in the room because we don't know how it got there and we don't want it to go away. So we... <laughs> everybody's uh, on eggshells until hopefully we get through that performance and maybe even try to do something else while the energy is happening. Often, as soon as you notice it, it evaporates. <laughs> but the maddening piece of this, maddening and magical at the same time, is that there are things you can do to increase the odds that the magic happens, but you can't really force it. So it's a bit of a conundrum. Yes, you can do everything right and it can go wrong. That said, the more consistently you do as much as you can, your odds get better. You can't say, I'm going to go out and catch three fish today, but you can say, I'm going to fish every day until I catch three fish. One of the keys there is you have to be doing something. And it reminds me of a quote, and I can't remember who said it, I think it was a painter, something to the effect of, the muse will visit, but she has to find you working. Oh, that's great. I love that. It's true. And one of the good habits recommended in the book is to keep some sort of office hours, whatever your version of office hours is. could be for 20 minutes a day. It could be for three hours a day. It's whatever works for you. You have to find your rhythm. But committing to showing up, whether you have something to do in that time or not, allows something to happen. Something happens when you show up. Coming up, Rick Rubin talks about his analogy of the vessel and the filter the importance of paying attention and being aware, the difference between authenticity and sincerity, why he believes that following your intuition is crucial, and the role of doubt. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. 
I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Can you talk to me about your analogy of the vessel and the filter? Yes. The vessel is, it's us. We are the vessel. And the vessel holds everything we've seen and experienced over the course of our life, both that we remember and that we don't. So we could see something beautiful and note it. That's in there. And then someone could say something that we didn't realize bothered us when we were 10 years old. That's in there too. The vessel is all of our conscious and unconscious experience in life. And then the filter is how we see those things. The vessel takes in everything. And then the filter is how we choose to, let's say, recapitulate it out or our version of it. Another example of the filter would be if you and I both did the same thing and wrote down our experience, what filled our vessel, even though we did the exact same thing, would not be the exact identical list. Your list and my list, maybe some of it would match, but some of it wouldn't. And the reason it wouldn't is because we each have our own filter. But the filter is not a one-way filter. It's not just filtering things as they're coming in. It's also filtering things as they're coming out. 
Yeah, it's like that movie Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa. It's like the same thing happens, but you get all these different versions of it. So, but what is the relationship there to creativity? It's that we can somehow work on the filter in some way. I guess you can work on the vessel too. We can work on both. Yeah. One of the things we can do for the vessel is curate our intake. So spend a lot of time reading the great works and seeing the greatest movies of all time and listening to the greatest music ever made and going to the museums and seeing what are considered the canon, even though the canon's always changing, whatever the canon for you is, that might get you further than listening to what's today's top 10, what's this week's most popular movie. Those things are, are much more transitory. So filling yourself with the things that have stood the test of time, not to copy them, but to like set your meter for what those things feel like. So that when you make something, it's like, does it fit in this context? Does it fit alongside these other things that I'm filled with from taking them in? Does it fit with a beautiful sunset? So you can curate your experience on the one hand, and then you can tweak the filter by doing practices like meditation, being in nature, et cetera. Exactly. Anything to refine the filter to where you're more attuned to what's going on. Awareness practices where you're really paying attention, where you're sitting in silence, not with an object of attention, just allowing whatever happens to happen and to be with it enough to notice what's happening, noticing the different things that are happening that had you not been doing this practice would have been complete background noise. You wouldn't have noticed it at all. All of those things. Also noticing things like at the different times of the day, noticing where the shadows are falling or noticing when you pass a plant or a tree, are there any other elements to it beyond the flower? What else is going on there? You know, like you, you start noticing things when you when you really pay attention. There's a lot to take in when we open the aperture and choose to see what's there. You know, as much of what's there, it's impossible to take it all in. It's endless. But opening the aperture with interest to see what's going on in the ordinary, in the mundane, there's usually something really interesting happening underneath. There's some story of life happening. And again, just to double back to your point here, that this is applicable not just to people who are making something that might qualify as art, as art is traditionally understood, but also to anybody who's doing life at all. Yes, to be a better parent, to be a better spouse, to be anything. I didn't know that. When I started the book, I didn't know these things. I didn't know what was going to be in the book. I didn't know what was in the book. I still don't really know what's in the book. It's through the process of working on the book, I realized so much of what it talks about is living in a way that allows this creation to happen. Turns out it applies to everything. Again, that, that was not what I set out to find. That was something I learned through the process. I think you've said that you thought you were writing a book about how to make art, but you were actually ended up writing a book about how to be. <laughs> yes. it's. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's really what happened. Well, because the two are inextricable. You know, I think that's the point you're making. Yeah. Another part of it is, and there's a, there's a chapter about the sincerity dilemma that talks sort of against sincerity, but really what we're looking for, what makes art great is authenticity. And the authenticity part of it, that comes through what the book talks about. 
It's about becoming an authentic person in the world as best you can, being a curious, authentic person. Okay, I have two questions. I'm just going to spit them out before I forget them. One is, what's the difference between authenticity and sincerity, which you have some questions about? And then also, why is it that so many schmucks have made great art? Is it because they were authentically schmucky? Could be. No, could be. It could be that they were just being true to themselves. It's like with spiritual teachers. Some of the best spiritual teachers have been accused of terrible things. It doesn't take away from their teachings. They're human beings. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like we're, we're all humans. We're flawed people. The art is our, it's like the highest, how can I explain it? It's our highest offering that we make. That said, there are people who make beautiful things that are flawed human beings, just like everybody else. But again, back to the authenticity piece, um, some names are coming to mind, but I don't feel like getting sued, so I won't say them. But you can think of people who were pretty terrible in their personal lives, but did transcendent works of art, but it was still authentic on some level. They must not have been hiding the bad aspects of themselves from themselves. I think that's right. And I think if you look also, we have to look at when these things happened and what was the standard of the time. And it's impossible to talk about anything from the past based on how we live today. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like culture is always moving. So we can't judge what life was like in another time if that was, or in another part of the world. There are parts of the world where things that we think of as civil there, we would view what happens in other parts of the world as barbaric. That doesn't make it wrong for them because that's that culture and that's how they see it. We're not right. They're not wrong. Those are just two different ways of living. We don't know that. Everything is an experiment and everyone is trying their best to solve their problems the best way they can. All right, which brings us back to empathy because everybody's doing their best, even though it may not seem like it in our judgment. Based on their vessel and filter, which we can only begin to comprehend. They're doing their best. Absolutely. And when we mentioned earlier sincerity, sincerity has the potential. If it happens in its own natural way, it's fine. Then it's authentic. But most often, it's one of the few things. Sincerity is the kind of thing that if you aim at it, it turns into like a hallmark moment. It becomes hollow. And I don't think that sincerity is something you can call up. I think it's something, again, it's more like a, an outgrowth of an authentic thing may turn out to be sincere, but it's not something you can set out to do. I guess I'm trying to figure out what's the, definitionally, what's the difference between authenticity and sincerity? Should we look them up? <laughs> I do, they have a different I'm, valence for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm not interested in the dictionary definition. I'm interested in the valence for Rick Rubin definition. Oh, okay. Sincerity has a sweetness about it. Authenticity has a raw honesty about it. I would say authenticity is more selfish. Because that's how we're wired, and if we're being really honest, it's always going to be there a little, or it's often going to be there? No, it's just, it's the purpose of me making this art is to share how I see the world. And if you don't like how I see the world, I can't change it for your taste, because then it's not authentic anymore. So the authentic artist makes their art to the best of their ability and shares it with the idea of, this is my diary entry. This is how I see the world. 
So if someone doesn't like it, you can't change it to someone else's feelings because that's their diary entry. They're not applicable to each other. Yes, that makes sense. And I guess I'm wondering, as somebody who personally, you know, I make podcasts, books, and things like that. But there's a, on the one hand, I do try to be authentic to the way I see the world. On the other hand, I do want to be open to other people's notes. Would you ever change something that you believe is good to something you believe is less good because somebody else thinks it would be better? Or even worse, if you had a fictional audience in mind, <laughs> would you change what you think is good for the fictional audience? That's the question. It's a great question. Let me, I'll answer it honestly and, and hopefully not take up too much airtime here. But I used to be a network newsman. And so for 21 years, I worked at ABC News and I made a lot of work there that I was very proud of, but I often had to change it in ways that I thought degraded the quality because my editors or bosses thought that that's what would be more palatable to the audience. So they were conjuring the fictional critics in their mind. And so I, I didn't have a choice because my whole paycheck depended on saying yes to those requests. I fought them sometimes, but I can only take it so far. Now that I'm on my own boss and I'm making podcasts and writing books that are memoirs and very personal, I do accept notes but only if I actually think they're good notes. So maybe that's the difference. I think that is the difference. I think that's the difference. And I completely understand making the art to the best of your ability. And if you have a job that involves some other power that has the power to decide whether you get to do it or not, again, you can have that fight, but ultimately that's that situation. It's, it's very specific to that situation. Yes. So back to authenticity and sincerity. Sincerity has a sweetness, uh, and if it's done with authenticity, it can be incredibly powerful. But if it's done with falseness, it can be twee, sweet, saccharine, and miss the mark. And I think when you aim at it, that's what happens. I don't know that it's possible to get there other than by accident through being authentic. Right. In terms of it really landing I don't know, though. That's my opinion. Maybe there's somebody who's an expert uh, false sincerity person, and they can just call it up on demand, and we believe them. <laughs> I think we call them actors. <laughs> I want to keep plowing ahead here because I have a whole long list of questions I want to ask you about because so many interesting things in your book. You also talk about intuition. Let me just read you back to you because I'd love to get you to talk about this. To the best of my ability, I followed my intuition to make career turns and been recommended against doing so every time. It helps to realize that it's better to follow the universe than those around you. It's not always easy to follow the subtle, energetic information the universe broadcasts, especially when your friends, family, coworkers, or those with a business interest in your creativity are offering seemingly rational advice that challenges your intuitive knowing. I find this very powerful, but also I find myself worrying that it's maybe a little tricky because, I mean, I've got intuition to, you know, do all sorts of things like commit homicides and go into candy stores and swallow everything. So, like, sometimes my really, intuition is... Is that an honest... Are you, are you honestly saying that that's what your intuition tells you? I don't believe that. I don't believe Well, that. I'm being um, facetious. I'm taking creative license a little bit with my intuition to make the point that absolutely listening to my body, listening to what you might call the heart has set me in absolutely the right direction. And there are aspects of the heart, the subconscious, whatever you want to call it, that are prone to delusion. 
And so it seems like this process of listening to your intuition is not necessarily straightforward. That's what I'm trying to get at. In making art, following your delusional thoughts can be a great gift. Hmm. That could be a superpower. Because it's a kind of sublimation. So instead of acting in a violent way, I can turn it into something beautiful artistically. Well, we see, um, if we look at heavy metal music, for example, heavy metal music often has violent lyrics, gory lyrics, and um, the music is very aggressive. And when people come together to, to hear that music, they don't come together filled with hatred. <laughs> they come together filled with love. <laughs> and they cheer and share this like uh, brotherhood of connection that maybe those people get to feel in very few places in their life. Maybe they don't get that at home in their family. Um, There's a band I worked with in the past called Slayer, who were a really gruesome band. And their shows were like celebrations. And the people who were there, that might be the biggest cause of celebration in their life. And I'm so pleased that those people get to celebrate. I buy that a thousand percent. And as it pertains to your career and anybody's career, this notion of listening to the subtle signs of the universe versus what your friends and loved ones might be telling you, that strikes me as tricky and not necessarily straightforward. Yeah, I understand. If you have a knowingness that this is right, usually the people around you have more of a sense of, I know what he did that worked in the past, so this left turn really seems like a dangerous move. And again, the example that I gave was true, that every step in my career that I made that was different than what I did before it, I was told by much wiser people than me not to do it. Every single time, people with experience, I was a kid, the experienced people around me don't do that. You know, you're a hip-hop producer, you can't make heavy metal records. You're a hip-hop heavy metal producer, you can't make country records. <laughs> you know, every step of the way, every next thing was, you can't do that, don't think about it, it's a terrible idea. And I just listened to what felt right to me, because no one can know, I don't think anyone can know what's right for us. Did your intuition ever lead you astray? I can't think of an example. One can think of examples of great artists who took risks and it didn't work. You know, the, the sophomore slump, the band comes out with a great first record. Some people say that about the Strokes. Their first record was amazing. And the second, I disagree, I, I should have liked their second record. But the idea of the sophomore slump happens all the time. And Or you can think of artists who take a big swing, they make a heaven's gate or whatever it is, and it doesn't work. Does that mean they were listening to their intuition and their intuition was wrong or they mistook intuition for something else? Well, who's to say what success is? You're judging success in a very particular way. Mm -hmm. Success isn't necessarily material success. Many of the great works of art that we look at now as great works of art were in their day not considered that. Rolling Stone put out this book of all of the articles written about Neil Young that appeared in Rolling Stone. And each one of his albums would come out and they would get a terrible review. And like uh, after the gold rush, you know, more boring cowboy songs from Neil and then Harvest, another stinker. And then, and he would talk about all of them. And then you would get to the best albums of the decade and Neil's albums would all be at the top of the, in the same, in the same publication, the best albums of the decade. So 
you never know. And sometimes an artist needs to do something really challenging for themselves that allows them to get to their next phase of work. Mm-hmm. If they do another in the mold of the successful ones before it, that could be the end of the whole thing. In a creative life, there are these peaks and valleys and dips and dives and twists and turns, and we take crazy risks, but they're all in the pursuit of making the best thing we can over a long period of time over and over again. And if you don't like this one, it's okay. You know, that's okay. It's like you're entitled to your opinion. It's It's usually the best you can do in that moment. The times when they're, what I've seen is the opposite of the artist thinking, okay, now we're successful. Now we have this obligation. What do they want from us? Where the thing that we made that was successful, we made purely out of passion when nobody was looking and nobody cared. We were being true to ourselves. That's how we got here. And now we have all these people counting on us and telling us what to do. So if we listen to them, who knows what's going to happen? And often the the sophomore slump comes from just too much well-meaning input from people who, again, they, they mean well. They just don't know. Nobody knows. That's the thing. Nobody knows. That leads us very nicely to something else you talk about in the book, which is the role of doubt in the creative process. You taxonomize it into two kinds of doubt. There's self-doubt and then doubt about the quality of the work. Can you just say more about that? Yes. Self-doubt is, I just wrote a song. I don't think the song's any good. I'm no good. I can't write songs. That is self-doubt. The other type of doubt is, I just wrote this song. The song's not good enough. What can I learn from this song to make a better song? Mm. I know I'm going to be able to figure this out. I know I'll find a way. It's okay to doubt a work, but when you turn the doubt around to, I'll never be able to do this, it's a recipe for disaster. So there's a healthy kind of doubt and an unhealthy kind of doubt. Well, they're just doubt about different things. Think about you and the things that you make and The things you make are outside of yourself for the most part. It's important to have that boundary between this is the thing that's outside of me, this is the thing I'm working on. And because it's outside of you, it's okay to talk about it, it's okay to criticize it, it's okay to tear it apart. And there's nothing personal in that. The sooner you can make the work the work, it's outside, it's this thing that anyone who gets involved Everyone's interest is the same. Make that thing outside of ourselves the best it could be. And there's no feelings to get hurt. There's no, you're no good. There's no, I don't like you. It's not, it's never that. All it is is, hmm, these lyrics aren't as good as they could be. What could we do to make them better? There's nothing personal in that. Given how easy it is to take it personally, however, what do you recommend to people to manage the self-doubt that can be so insidious and paralytic? One is to know that it's not you. Two is to get into the detail. The more detail you can get into, instead of the kind of black and white thinking of, oh, it's no good. If uh, someone brings me a piece of music and asks my opinion, my answer would never be, it's no good. It might be, this is what I like about it, this is what I don't like about it. Strengths and weaknesses. I might say, this is not my cup of tea. I wouldn't listen to this. But that's not about it. That's about me. 
I believe you also talk about getting the artists you work with to put a name on the self-doubt. Uh, you use the term papancha. That's a Pali word for proliferating thoughts that we can have in Sanskrit. We, it's prapancha. Can you say more about papancha slash prapancha and, and why it's useful to label it? Yeah, it's for people who don't know about it, it's useful to label it. Once you know what it is, you're okay. I've worked with artists in the past who have a great deal of self-doubt. And once they understand that the voices in their head that's undermining what they're doing is not them, that it's this chatter, you know, monkey mind. Once you can understand when it comes up, oh, that's what that is. Or if you have someone, a friend who can remind you when you start saying, oh, I'll never be able to do this, I'm no good. And it's like, no, 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 that's, that's papancha. And like, oh yeah, I remember now. <laughs> Yes. So I'm in year five or six of writing my next memoir, and I deal with a lot of doubt. And I sometimes have to just kind of step away from the computer, put my hand on my chest. And, you know, I wouldn't want anybody to see me do this, but give myself a pep talk like, dude, you're fine. Keep going or maybe take a break or whatever. But, you know, you're good. Just keep chipping away every day, make a little bit of progress and you'll get there. Is that what happens? It's like, does it turn around? Sometimes. Sometimes I have to just lie on the floor and enlist a local cat to join me. Um, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But I do find that it's very helpful. I mean, and there's a lot of data to suggest for those who like data that this is a successful strategy, that you can harness your advice-giving skills on yourself. Absolutely. I think I talk about that in the book as you envision, if you're really suffering with something, make believe that this is something happening to a close friend and say out loud what you would say to that friend who is dealing with this issue. Yes. And I found that to be incredibly helpful. And to also see that the thoughts I'm having about how's this going to be received and is it going to be as good as my last book and is it going to be commercially successful, all that stuff is just not useful. No. And it doesn't have anything to do with what you're doing. <laughs> You're writing something. You're not putting together a marketing campaign. You're not <laughs> assessing it. You know what I'm saying? You, those are conversations to have when the book is finished, not when you're in it. When you're in it, all that matters is what's the next part of this? What's interesting to go to from here? What can I try next? But what happens after your day of work has nothing to do with it. Right. So I think I could get even better at this, I think, of just being more disciplined, of seeing that coming up and saying, Papancha, no thank you, not now, not relevant, not helpful, and not in a violent way. No, no, no. It's not relevant. It's, we'll deal with you later. You know, you'll, mm -hmm. you'll have your say. You will have your say when it's done. We can talk about this. Yes. But now I have work to do. Coming up, Rick talks about what to do when you're feeling stuck in a creative endeavor, his approach to work-life balance, his take on drugs and their effect on the creative process, and his thoughts on the creative capacity of artificial intelligence. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment 
or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. What do you recommend when people get stuck in a creative endeavor? And again, this could be making something traditionally understood as art or, you know, making a decision about anything in life. First thing that comes up, I mean, there are probably a lot of things, but the first thing that comes up is changing the context of what you're doing. So turn off the lights, light a candle, go for a walk, change the way you're doing what you're doing, go on a trip. You know, find a new environment, work in a new place, work outside instead of inside, sit in a coffee shop, listen to the chatter, get inspired, you know, find, put yourself in a place that allows it to happen, where you can get out of yourself, where there's other stimulation. Like going for walks is really good. Walks are great. I also have done, like if I have a problem I'm trying to solve, I might go for a swim and just forget about the problem, but it's there. And I swim and I swim and I swim, focus on swimming. And at some point, it's not unusual to like, oh, this might be a way to do it, even though I wasn't trying to solve it in that moment. I was focused on breathing and swimming. An example I often cite of exactly what you're talking about, I think, is in the TV show Mad Men itself, in my opinion, a great work of art. Loved it. And Don Draper is asked by his younger associate, Peggy, you know, how do you come up with these slogans? And he said, I work all day work, 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 and then I go to the movies. Yeah, and zone out. And meditation is a version of zoning out. It's like either getting wrapped up in something other than your work, which would be going to a movie, reading something and really, you know, falling into the story. At some point you realize, oh, I'm, I'm reading a book. I'm not actually in this. I'm not in this scene. I'm not experiencing this. Then when you come back, you have a clean slate to start from. Yes, and the mind is working that whole time, yeah. making subconscious connections, et cetera, et cetera. We talk about that in the book, the idea of that when you practice, you don't get better immediately from practice. You get better when you recover from the practice. You know, it's like weightlifting. When you finish lifting weights, you're not stronger than when you started. 
But when you recover, you're stronger than when you started. And the same is true with practicing piano. At the end of a long piano practice, you're not a better pianist. You're done. But the next day when you come back to it, or two days later, it'll integrate into you. How do you manage your schedule as it pertains to your creative work? Do you have to be careful not to overwork and say, if you're going to do a big project like a book, do you need to really assiduously cut down on the number of bands you're producing? I've only done one book, so I can't say if I was going to do another one, how it would work. And the last one happened while other things were happening. And it took a long time. It took eight years. And it didn't take eight years because I sat down every day to work on it for eight years, but it was just ongoing collecting ideas. And then once there were, you know, a thousand pages of ideas, then there was a long process of trying to figure out how to make it into a book. So do you ever find yourself having to make tough calls about, oh, well, I have to say no to this because I need to manage my bandwidth? Or can you just do it all and just do it at a pace that is humane? I'll say, interestingly, for the majority of my career, without good management skills, it has worked itself out one way or another, where I can't think of anything that I've wanted to do that I haven't gotten to do unless there have been a couple of occasions where I was excited and an artist was excited and we started doing something and we just, there was some disconnection happened maybe two times in my life where it just didn't work. But other than that, it has always worked out one way or another. And, you know, there was a time when I would be going pre-internet over the course of a day, I'd be in four different recording studios for four hours at a time on four different projects. I feel like um, in my role, I'm available when the time is right for the project to happen. It's, do you know what I'm saying? I can't, many people who do my production job will say, okay, I'm available from November 2nd to January 3rd, and we're going to make it in that period. I can't work that way because I want it to be great. And I know it doesn't work that way. So everything is this open-ended, fluid thing where you know, when you have songs, let's sit down and listen to them. And then let's figure out how as soon as possible that we could record them if they're ready to be recorded. And then how the different steps work after that. It really has to do with when it's ready to happen. Because I, again, I know I can't impose my schedule on a project and expect it to be good. That fluidity, improvisation, that sounds very wise vis-a-vis -vis the creative process and outcomes. And yet I just, I'm curious, like, how do you manage your own sleep and burnout and overwork while being open in this way? One of the things that has changed, I used to work, I, I mentioned earlier, I used to work all night and I used to work very long hours. And in the early days, most of us who were doing what we were doing associated the amount of time we spent in the studio to either how hard we were working or how good it was going to be. And that was just a bad idea. I didn't know that then. And now I spend only the amount of time necessary in the studio to get the best outcome. And if I'm needed, I'm there. And if I'm not needed, I'm not there. Mm. And I typically work on an album project in the afternoon. Usually we start at noon or one and typically work till about six and again, if it's a particularly magic day and things are really cooking and going great, 
we may work a couple of hours longer because catching the moment, you know, if the fish are biting, we, we take advantage. But in general, those hours seem like the amount of time that I can really pay attention with all of myself, be completely focused on what's happening and be of use. And then usually at the end of that time, I'll give a list of all the things that can be tried. And then in some cases, the artists work all night until three in the morning after that. And then we'll meet the next day at noon or one and listen to what happened the night before and talk about, okay, this really works. This, I thought this was going to work. This didn't really work. Maybe we try it like this. And we just keep updating things. In the morning, you clear out for yourself for meditation, exercise, whatever else you want to do. Yes. Wake up slowly, typically go for a walk, depending on where I am, often a beach walk, long beach walk, and listen to an audio book or listen to a podcast. Depending on the practice I'm doing, I might meditate before it, or I might do, I've been doing a Tai Chi ruler practice now, which I do usually late afternoon before dinner. I just started doing a coherent breathing practice that I do as often as I can to add up to about 30 minutes a day, just experimenting with it, seeing how it sits with me. So it sounds like there is space in your calendar. You're not lurching from one thing to the next on your to-do list. No, and I'm not beholden to what there is to do. In other words, if a project's at a place where it's time for me to send notes, but I know that the notes aren't going to be dealt with immediately, I'll do it immediately if that's what suits my schedule. And if I need to wait a week before I address it, considering nothing's going to happen anyway, do you know what I'm saying? It's like if the notes aren't going to be dealt with, then I do it on the schedule that makes sense for life. And I do a better job of it because of it, because I I like to do things when I really feel present. For something important, I want to feel like I'm really, like if I'm not feeling good one day, I probably wouldn't want to make a big choice about something really important on a day where I'm not feeling my best. So I might, you know what? I'll come back to this tomorrow. I'm going to take care of myself. So what I'm hearing there is a mixture of fluidity, you know, a kind of jazz approach to your schedule and the work, and also some ruthlessness of like, you know, I'm going to protect this amount of time for a long, leisurely, aimless walk and some breathing and some meditation because I can't do the stuff everybody wants me to do if I don't do that. So am I restating this with some accuracy? Yeah, whatever it takes for the work to be good is what what I'll do. And often, if I'm not taking care of myself, I don't think I can be of much use. Right. But I would imagine you get a lot of incoming. You know, I would love to have Rick Rubin read my book and tell me if he thinks it's good. I'm sure every band in the world would love to have you produce their record or give notes on it. There has to be some discipline on, I can't take on this project right now, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Usually I find that when it's the beginning of something, like if I'm being asked to do something, it usually works best if I meet the artist and we meet and in their presence, we listen together and talk about where they're at, if they've already started something or if they have a vision of what they want to do, or if they don't have a vision of what they want to do, how they assess everything that's happened up till now and talk about possible ways that it could go. Usually it, it happens in a pretty natural way. You mentioned something earlier that I've been thinking about when to follow up on, so I'll do it now. You talked about getting high as a shortcut 
and maybe not the best sustainable strategy for long-term creativity. And yet, you know, I think about the way cannabis has been used in creative process for many years. Do you think that's not sustainable? I'll say I know some bands who smoke a lot who have not been able to keep their relationship together. Now, I've also seen the opposite. There's no right answer for everybody. It seems like usually any substance that's altering you is a shortcut to something that your body can do on its own if you tap into the right energy. Mm. There's the story of Ram Das giving his guru a handful of acid, you know, enough acid for a horse. And the guru said, what's this? And just took it all. And it had no effect on him because he was already there. He was in this place. So I can remember an artist once telling me, you listen to music like I heard music after I took acid. <laughs> except <laughs> except I'd never took acid. So um, I think we can get there without it. That said, whatever works for everybody, I'm, I'm not against anyone trying it. I can remember one example of where a particular guitar player who's very much lived in his head, I'd spent time with him in general outside of the studio, and he liked to drink in real life. And in the studio, he was very critical of himself and very um, in his head. It didn't feel like he was playing with his whole body. It felt too intellectual. And that was one time that I suggested, maybe you should have a few drinks and again, that's not my normal, wouldn't be normal, but in that particular case, based on my experience with him and seeing how he acted when he was having fun outside of the studio, I thought maybe in this particular case, it'll get us where we need to go. That makes sense. You talk about this magic moment when things are cooking in the studio, and I must imagine that that's a drug in and of itself. Just last night, I was online and I was watching a clip of Timbaland and Jay-Z, the moment they came up with that song, Dirt Off Your Shoulder, watching Timbaland play the beat to Jay-Z, and then he goes right into the studio and ad-libs this song. It's unbelievable to watch. Similarly, watching that documentary, Get Back, Peter Jackson's documentary about the Beatles, where you watch Paul, you know, sit down on the bass waiting for John to show up, and he writes... What does he write? Get back, I think. Get back, yes. He writes, get back. And and where you see, like, there's a shot where Ringo's talking to some random person, and he's in focus, Ringo is, and in the foreground, out of focus, is Paul writing, let it be. And I can think of few more thrilling things to witness than that act of creation. And that is your life, and that must be just awesome. Absolutely. It's thrilling and definitely addictive, and again, we can't control it, can't make it happen. But when you're in the room and it happens, it's stunning, breathtaking. And why, why we keep coming back for more. We only have a few more minutes left. So let me ask just a few more questions. Can AI, which everybody's talking about now, artificial intelligence, can AI, which is trained on the corpus of human knowledge, create in this way? I will say I don't know enough about AI, but I'll start by saying the way we each work is we all take in a great deal of information into our vessel, and then through our filter, we come up with something new. I heard an interesting thing where some very smart business people who knew a lot about technology were talking about AI, and they said that there are currently five competing AIs. And 
eventually, with the same data sets in all five of them, over time, as they got better and better, all five would get to the same answer. Now, if you give a great script to five different movie directors, you'll get five different movies. So the AI is doing something different than what we do. Mm. What we do is we bring our point of view to the project. The AI doesn't have a point of view. It's just got a lot of data, but it doesn't have a point of view. And the thing that we're looking for from our artists, it's not a lot of data. We're looking for the point of view. Well said. Is there something that you wish I had asked, but that I failed to ask? I can't think of anything. Can you just remind everybody of the name of your book and any other things you've made that you think would be of interest to the audience? The book is called The Creative Act, A Way of Being. And if you go online, you can find a whole bunch of music I worked on. (laughs) Also, there was a great documentary called Shangri-La on Showtime about you doing your work. Yes, and I made a sort of a documentary called McCartney 321 with Paul McCartney looking at Beatles songs. It blew my mind. (laughs) It blew my mind being in the room and hearing the stories. It's unbelievable. I'm so happy it's on film because I would think it was a dream had it not been captured. It is awesome. It's available on Hulu. I recommend it. I'm a longtime fan. It's a huge pleasure to meet you, albeit virtually. So thank you for making time. Pleasure meeting you. I look forward to reading your next book. Thanks again to Rick Rubin. Awesome to talk to that guy. What a legend. Thank you as well to you for listening. As always, I'm going to ask you, go give us a rating and review. That really helps us. So thank you for that. And thanks most of all to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Lauren Smith, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And we get our theme music from Nick Thorburn of the band Islands. Before we go, just one last uh, little note here. We got a lot of great feedback uh, a few weeks ago when I asked the audience if you uh, would be up for me slash us adding a third episode. We got a resoundingly positive response to that. So we're going to do another experiment with a third episode this week. Coming up on Friday, a full-on episode with a fascinating guy who's been on this show before, a former congressman from Ohio, former and perhaps, who knows, future presidential candidate, Tim Ryan, who has talked a lot about uh, being a a very public meditator. And we're going to talk to him about how all those years of meditation helped him handle a a really tough and somewhat bitter defeat in a recent uh, Senate campaign. So Tim Ryan coming up uh, in just a few days. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.